and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. I hope you are doing well and that you're healthy. Really grateful to have you with us for another great conversation today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for your support. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, we would love it if you go over to iTunes and write us a review. Uh, Ideally, you give us five stars as well, but we won't be picky. Just go over there, write us a review, uh, and let us know what you think of the podcast. Also, if you like today's conversation, share it. Share it on social media, send a text or an email to grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, a friend of yours. We really do appreciate those of you that share these conversations. It's the best way that we know how to expand our reach and to try to get this wisdom and this knowledge and these stories into as many people's ears as possible, or in my case, I'm deaf in my left ear, into my ear as possible. So thank you all for being here. And now to today's guest. Alexander Calais was a teacher in a program that I was at at Georgetown, and we have since connected and talked a lot about the coaching world and the consulting world, and he is an organizational psychologist, a consultant, and a coach internationally known for his pioneering approach to team coaching and state-of-mind research with organizational leaders. We're going to talk a lot about team coaching and what goes into that and what that looks like at the corporate or executive level and state of mind research, which Alexander has really put so much work into. And he's going to talk about what he has found in that regard. He's also an adjunct professor at the program I mentioned, which is Georgetown University's Leadership Coaching Certificate Program, a guest lecturer at the American University, and a frequent international speaker on the subjects of change, teams, coaching, and leadership. He's ridiculously wise, smart, well thought out, and he's very vulnerable. And I think you're going to appreciate his vulnerability during this conversation and some of the missteps he's made along the way and what he's learned about himself in his journey. So I know you're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Alexander Kalei. Alexander, thank you so much for giving us some time today. We're still in quarantine mode. So um, if the internet goes in or out for either of us, we're just going to adjust and and go as needed. We first met 
when you were teaching a class at, at Georgetown where I was really fortunate. I, I really am so grateful that I was able to go through that program, which is an executive coaching program. And for those that have listened to podcasts before, you've probably heard me reference it at some point. And I don't know if I've said this before, but I actually did not get into the program when I first applied. And it was one of the best things that's happened to me. And I'm a competitive person. I don't take failure lightly, but it really helped me rethink and reshape how I thought about that program and come in with a level of humility that I think I needed. And that was healthy for me. And my favorite uh, class that we had was the one that you taught, which was around team coaching. And uh, it's just brilliant. So to do this, I feel like I'm getting extra value from the program and I don't have to pay for it. So I feel really honored to have you on. And then I also just want to thank you before we get started. I reached out to you after the program and just wanted to learn a little bit about the business that you've been involved with for a while now and how you think about business. And it was one of the calls that has really stuck with me and helped shape how I'm thinking about building the business that I want and that I'm passionate about. So first I just want to say thank you. And then Uh what I want to do next is learn a little bit more about you. So you're very vulnerable and willing to share your own journey. But Uh what I don't know about is really your upbringing and and your childhood and what that was like for you as a kid. So give us some perspective and some insight into what life was like for you as a kid. So first of all, it's great to be with you. It really is. When you, you know, when, when we connected on this, I was excited about it. Um, I remember the conversation we had following the course. And so it's just nice to be with you, and, and especially in this time, which is so, so intense for so many of us. Um, let's start with your question. So my upbringing, it's actually a really important part of my story, my upbringing, because it, it leads to who I am today and what I'm doing. So I was born in France. in. Um, uh, a small little village in the center of France back in 1963. Uh, my parents were French, and um, it was a pretty simple upbringing up until about four years old. My grandparents raised me, not really with my parents a lot, a little bit of distancing there, a little bit of non-inclusion. And then, were, Sorry, Alexander, where were your parents? Uh, so my parents were working, and they were going back to Paris, and so they handed me off to my grandparents. And actually, I think that that actually led me to have some of my first mini traumas as an infant, not to be with my mother and my father and to be with my grandparents. And as a young boy, being with them, now that I'm older, I'm starting to see, now that I've done the psychological studies on myself and some of the therapy work, I see that those early stages were tough. But we got back together as a family. My brother was born. And then my father, as a young French engineer, decided to move to the United States in 1967 as a real pioneer, um, leaving the family behind. And he brought us to Seattle, Washington to work for Boeing. And I specifically remember being very, very young and feeling this rupture inside of saying goodbye to my grandparents and ending up in Seattle, which was for us, you know, like the far West, young French family. And that began what was um, truly an astonishing number of moves. From there, my father got laid off. He went to New York. We went back to France. Then he brought us back. We went to Detroit. There were three moves that happened in Detroit. And then after that, we moved back to France. There were two moves in France. We came back to the States. We went back to Michigan. 
All in all, by the age of 18, I had lived through 12 moves. And, with my, and what, what were those transitions like as a kid? I mean, I, uh, yeah. kids are not easy. First of all, to somebody, I think, what were you, four when you came to the States? I was, as an immigrant, yeah. So you're an immigrant, and two years later in kindergarten, and then <laughs> you're moving around. Like, what, what was it like? What was your childhood like from, from your perspective? Well, so, you know, when you, look at the, when you look at the list of stressors, you know, moving, and true moves, moving away from... <clears throat> A, a solid location um, happened to be some of the top, always one of the top stressors. And as children, it becomes a very important stressor. So I think that's what it did to me. I, I had these recollections of um, after the first move to Seattle, then moving back and back, I started to build this, um, this concern that I was going to leave again. And that was always there it was kind of like this low level stress, concern, worry that my dad's going to, unveil the fact that we're moving again. And therefore, um, I was never really settled. Um, I was making friends that I knew I could leave, so they weren't real friends. Um, I felt this sadness every time we moved. I felt this deep sense of, um, of rupture. And then I get to a new place and I didn't belong. And I was the new kid. And that felt odd. And so throughout this period, it was always, I'm, I'm sad because I'm saying goodbye. It feels like an internal rupture. I'm going to a new place. I don't know them. I'm new. They don't like me. And so I don't know that I belong anywhere. I don't know that I'm included and I'm not integrated. And it started to feel um, pretty awful, <laughs> actually. And what's interesting about it for me is that my, my parents were, bringing us up in this in this idea that it was okay like just deal with it like it's cool like we're moving around like you can deal. like i had to sort of i embodied this idea that i had to be okay with it like this is what you do so there was a real dissonance between the feeling i had and this idea of what i should be doing and that dissonance became actually part of my and still to this day my current state dilemmas inside and you said a brother. How yeah. much younger was your brother? I have one brother uh, who's two years younger, and I have another brother who's seven years younger. He was born later um, when we were back in France. Do they share uh, some of the qualities you have? Are they different? Like, <laughs> how, how does that shifting and changing and transitioning, how has it impacted them if you thought about it? Yeah, so there's some personal pieces there that I'm going to, you know, um, not share, but let's just say that it was very hard on them. Um, it was hard on them and they went through a lot to get through it. I don't think they were as vocal about it. And I think because I'm in the world of psychology and of all the work that I do, I became very aware of it for myself and I worked on it and I worked through it and I was actively engaged in it. I'm not sure that they did that same work. So there were some, there were some definite collateral damage which they've gotten through as as older men now but it was tough on them too and i've had a lot of conversations with military brats over the year who years who bounce around from military base military base and a lot of them will say that they also learned how to blend in or how to fit in and how to spot 
someone or notice people or like have a sense for where they could go that would be safe or where they can go once they got to a, a new location. Were there any of those sort of upsides or positives that also uh, rubbed off on you? Oh, yeah. So, you know, now, now that we look at the difficulties, um, to your question, let's look at the upsides or benefits. So number one, I got to see the world. Very young, I, I touched on different cultures. We moved, you know, different places, but we also traveled on vacation. So I got to see cultures and my life did, my life continued that way ever since. You know, I've been to 54 countries, worked in 32 countries. So one of the great benefits is I became accustomed to different cultures, different types of people and learned how to be comfortable. So one of the things that I said about me, and this is not to be immodest, is that I'm approachable, easy to get along with. I'm someone people feel very comfortable coming towards. I think it's because I learned that. That was a big advantage. Number two, and this is a big one in the work that, you know, that we do, is um, by seeing so many different types of people, I saw diversity. And I was always very comfortable with different types of people. And so I... I I was less judgmental and more willing to engage in different cultural habits and different people and just willing to engage with them in who they were and be really curious about them and actually many times fall in love with them and build deep friendships with people who are very different than me. And that's another benefit. And I think the other one is um, it's being comfortable in the world. It's I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I, I, I'm very um, excited about and warm to the idea of, of going to a different place, of traveling, of, of, of seeing a different culture, seeing a different type of people. And I'm very excited about it and I'm not fearful. And I think that's an important point for me, the lack of fear, the more of the curiosity and the engagement in it. What values did mom and dad pass down to you? <laughs> I love how we're having this conversation, by the way, just to shoot night. I love it. As I was saying, you know, didn't prepare for this. And I like to dance. I like I to know, jump. man. It's like, boom, boom. Um, <laughs> this is great. Um, I was asked this question once before, and I had an answer for it many, many years ago. But let, me, um, let me give you the, the honor of reflecting on that a little bit. Um, So there were some very clear values. My father said things to me occasionally. He was an engineer. He was a very, uh, very intelligent man, emotionally withdrawn, but he had these pearls of wisdom. And those pearls of wisdom became my value set. So one day, for example, he said, um, said to me, Alex, um, later in life, whether you walk with kings or with peasants, keep the same gait, the same walk. In other words, whether you're with kings or peasants, be the same. You know, it, it's, they're human beings and, and you must treat all people the same. And that for me became a value of respect, which is very important for me. And whether you are a king or a peasant, you're still a human being. Therefore, you merit my attention and you merit my um, being with you in the same way. That's number one, that value of respect. 
The second value that came to me um, came through this. He once said to me, you know, he goes, you, you will know you're a successful man when you will wake up in the morning and look forward to your day of work. And you will go to sleep that night knowing you did a good job. And what it struck me, you know, he, these are sayings he said when I was like 9, 10, and 11. It was like a period. And I remember thinking to myself, um, you know, that means that I need to work hard, but I need to do what I love to do. So the value is to be very much aligned. My craft, my life's work has to be aligned with my deeper sense of purpose and meaning. Um, that's two. Um, there was another one which um, he, he gave me when I was uh, 18 years old on a little gold pendant, uh, the word if, and it was the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, which is a beautiful piece. And that poem has a lot to it, but one of the values that emerged out of it was, um, I'm, I'm gonna get emotional. Huh. And my father passed two, um, my father passed a couple of years ago, so. Sorry about that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't talked about this. Uh, there's a lot in that poem. If you read the poem, it's a, it's, it's a very strong poem. And um, there's a value in that poem about, um, you know, that, the, and, and this is very much, a, it, this is a poem about being a man. So obviously it has that, that gender influence, but the deeper meaning is that, you know, that life is a marathon. You stick with it. You don't give up. You, you, um, you, 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 you stay in the race, you show courage, you, you treat every second of life as precious. And I think there's, there's so much about the way I show up in life, full out, engage, never give up, keep going. Like that came out of that poem for me. And uh, those are some of the values that I have. Yeah, if I were to like synthesize it or summarize it, it's, it's work ethic, determination, respect, passion. Uh, those are some themes that I'm hearing. What about mom? What, what was mom like? Was she like dad? Was she opposite? What, 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 what was she like? Mom, mom was an amazing uh, human being. My mother was um, the opposite of my father. Very emotional, very um, extroverted. My father was an introvert. She was, uh, she was very charismatic, very energetic. Um, had a lot of um, had a lot of energy. Loved to be the center of attention, as we all would say. Uh, she sang, she danced, she moved. She she kept things always going for us. Uh, there was music on in the morning when we woke up. There was food on the table. She came from a Spanish background, so she brought this energy of Spain with France, and so there was a lot of joy and laughter. So I, I think what she brought to me, some of the values were. Um, the value of uh, being in life, alive, experiencing, whether I'm eating or listening to music or being with people, is to, is to go for the emotion, to tap into the feeling and to say, be alive, be present, be engaged. That was a fundamental value, something that I've, I've cultivated over the years. And, and then the other value is that she, um, she liked to talk. So she wanted to talk. She wanted us to talk. Uh, and she wanted to communicate. So if there was an issue, we talked about it. She was always asking questions. How do you feel? What's going on for you? What is your life like? And I think that's where some of my coaching skills were born because my father 
was probably colder and it was more rational and tactical. My mother was like, so how was your day and what's going on? And who are you in love with? And how's that feeling for you? And, and that led me to really understand the power of being in the question of asking people about their lives, but also about inquiry and curiosity. So those would be two of the, of the strong values she brought. Are you more like mom or more like dad? <laughs> oh. Oh, that's a great question. Well, there's a shadow side to both, right? And I used to be more like mom, both the good and the shadow. And I think as I age, I'm becoming more like dad, both the good and the shadow. Um, I used to be much more extroverted, out there, seeking attention, probably not always very honest, bit of a butterfly jumping around, um, but very alive and engaged and present. Um, not, not honest with yourself or not honest with others? Both. I don't think I was honest with myself. I'm not sure that I was always looking deep and saying how I really felt, hence the state of mind work. But always not honest with others. I think the, w one of the uh, pieces of collateral, quote, damage of moving around so much is I developed, when I was younger, a habit of exaggerating and not always being honest. I think it was to protect myself. I would just invent stories or sometimes make things up because I could. So I didn't really want to tell the truth. And I think that habit followed me into adulthood. And when that was combined with this idea of, of um, being present and being engaged, I think sometimes I came off as fake or artificial. Even though I was very fun to be with, there was something that wasn't quite accurate or quite truthful about me. And I think that's true. Um, so that's the early stage. As I've got, and very extroverted. As I've gotten older now, I'm now 56, I'm more introverted. I'm much more thinking um, in a cognitive way. I'm more rational, the technical work, my father's engineering background. I'm finding myself moving away from emotions, not so extroverted, not so, not, not so out there. I'm much more truthful, honest, authentic, and I don't need to be dishonest with myself, about myself or with others, so that's settled down. But the shadow side, I think, is um, I think sometimes I... I grow a little quiet. I don't communicate as much. I, I internalize my stress. Um, and I think that's not always been helpful lately. You mentioned the state of mind work. Uh, give everybody, you know, I've heard you talk about it. I've, I've watched online. We talked about it at Georgetown. But give everybody else who hasn't had that opportunity a, a glimpse into that work and um, yeah, just unpack that a bit for us. Sure. So the journey on state of mind began, oh, I don't know now, um, over 20 years ago. I was a young consultant. Um, in one of my first gigs, one of the first firms I was hired into, and a couple of things were happening for me at the time. Um, I was, um, at the time in my late 20s, early 30s, a very, um, as I was saying, extroverted, um, energetic person. And I had a way of working and being that was probably more stressful and anxious. And so I was always on the move and moving around and asking for more and trying harder and pushing and pushing. 
and I was giving off stress and anxiety and worry, which was part of uh, a byproduct also of all those moves and being younger. And I was getting this feedback. My clients loved the work that I did. My clients really gave me straight A's, if you will, because I ended up being very calm with them and very measured. And, but my colleagues and my friends and my family were constantly telling me, Alex, you're stressed out. You're too anxious, and it's really sometimes just not fun to work with you. I was getting bad performance reviews and just bad feedback. And I kept saying, no, the hell with it. You know, it's who I am, and it's what I do. And, but then it got worse. Um, the feedback got worse, but also I started noticing that I was getting more and more stressed, and I was having physiological issues, et cetera. At the same time, I was doing some basic um, observation of leaders that we were working with. I had the great fortune to work with some amazing organizational business leaders. And I was noticing a continuum there in terms of what I would call mood at the time. There were some leaders who were very aggressive and angry and pushing and stressed, kind of like I was, and others who were more calm and measured and clear. And as I watched them, I noticed they're both producing results. But there's a legacy effect. And actually, the ones who are calmer and clear are getting the same work done but in a different way. And so I became fascinated with them, noticing that I was more like the former and thinking I've got to make some changes for myself. And that's when I started to do some personal work around mindset and mood and mindfulness. And I came upon this idea of state of mind, which came to me through a number of different practices, that there is this, this way we hold ourselves, this state of mind, which is the moment-to-moment -moment experience of life that was generated by our thinking and expressed through our feelings. And I decided, you know, this is a really important idea. And so I launched into it at that time. That's the beginning of it. Just to hit the pause button, as you look back on your career, this, like what I'm envisioning is this high driving, ambitious, obsessed person <laughs> who is going to perfectionism, like trying to make sure that, he gets to where he wants to go. And as a result, is able to perform. And I see this with athletes a lot. Like a lot of them are obsessive, are perfectionist, are afraid of failure. Um, those are themes. And they put all of that into their preparation so that when they're you know, on the court or in the pool or on the field, they just can be present and, and just perform. Um, and it's interesting because there's a documentary, this is going to come out after it's already been, been played, but the Michael Jordan Bulls documentary. And, and, and there is a quote today where Michael's set, Jordan said, like, yeah, people are going to think I'm an awful person when they watch this. Wow. And there's a dark side to elite performance. Um, and for me, what I've come to realize is that the best performers actually shift their mind from preparation to performance. Yeah. And they recognize that let's take selfish, that they need to be selfish in preparation and do everything they need to do so they can be selfless and serve their teammates. Perfectionism in itself isn't necessarily bad, but you have to learn how to be adaptable in performance. Um, fear of failure in itself isn't necessarily bad in preparation, but it can be crippling in performance and we have to shift to fearlessness. And the question is how all of this looks when you're part of a team. And I think that's what you're also referencing is you were a high performer, but you were burning bridges along the way and right. you were leaving 
um, you know, issues and for leaders of companies that it's actually often not their job to be an executor and performing anymore. It's now their job to think strategy and think uh, more broadly. So for, for me, the question, as I just went off a little bit there, is around if you could talk to your 25-year-old self and 28-year-old <laughs> self, would you do it differently? Or do you think that that was what you needed to do to acquire the knowledge so that, and then learn what didn't work and go through that process to figure out a different way? I would just be curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, that's a great tee up in a question. Um, I think, you know, I think that the answer is I had to go through what I, have to go through to get to where I am, for sure. Um, I think if I would look back at my younger self, I would share with my younger self what I've learned about state of mind, the lessons of state of mind. You know, that inherently, we, we use this framework called above the line, below the line. And we created this three levels above, three levels below, separated by a neutral line. And you can go minus three to plus three. And you can take a look at how those levels occur for you minus three low states of mind plus three high states of mind and the fact is that we're always going to be variable you know state of mind is variable so some days you're up some days you're down and it's okay it's legitimate it's the human condition i tended to have a lot of variability number one number two is that state of mind is the lens through which you see the world so oftentimes i saw the world from below the line frustrated or anxious so the world seemed uh not easy or out to get me or challenging or always something to push on and that's something I would have said, you know, that's not, the, that's not the way you need to see the world. You could be above the line and see the world differently. And that's something I would have told my 25. I think it would have saved me a lot of grief. I think it would have saved some relationships. I think I would have gotten the same amount done. But the most important piece I would have said is, you know, state of mind can be contagious. It has an impact on others around you. I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned is that Okay, so I'm stressed, I'm anxious, whatever I am. And I wasn't always that way, by the way. Plenty of times I was energized and up and positive. And I was always a, I'm also, I was also a pretty good person, right? I'm not, I don't want to paint such a bad picture. But in those times when I was below the line and I was contagious, I was pushing people away. I wasn't building teams. I wasn't building anything. I was actually ending up alone a lot. And I think that's what I would say. I would say, you know, Alex, you need to own where you're at and be accountable for your state of mind, understand its impact. And then if you are, you know, if you can learn how to shift above when you're with others, or if not just own it, but don't push it on them. Ask for their understanding, ask for their support, get support. But you can't just go out there and spread the state of mind everywhere because honestly, you're not building any, you're not building any bridges. And so I ended up working alone a lot. It's, it's just interesting. I'm thinking, right? of, I'm thinking about some of our great athletes of all time. And look, I, I come from the sports world and often thinking, I think sports is really most useful just as for analogies and to think about it and not even sports to take it beyond that, right? Bezos, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, uh, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade, uh, you know, Andre Agassi, pick, pick a lot. Those are all happen to be male athletes, but, um, you know, I'm not anti-divorce guy. Like I think divorce is actually like 
someone should absolutely get divorced. I think living a miserable existence with somebody is far worse than getting divorced. So I'm not anti-divorce guy, but all those people, Muhammad Ali, all those people I just mentioned, like either cheated on their spouse or like had something happen and, and decided to go in a different direction in their relationships. And they all, Kobe Bryant, um, they all, uh, were also obsessed with maximizing. Uh, all of them were obsessed with maximizing. And I'm just thinking about you and it sounds like, hey, I wanna maximize, maximize, maximize. Right. But the personal and professional toll that that can have on, on those around you and how it can impact them um, and, and what that can leave. I think it's a really important message for all of us to hear, especially people listening to this podcast because people listening to this podcast are naturally trying to improve at mm -hmm. in some aspect of their life in an intentional manner. Um, so I think that's, that contagion piece is really important and creating boundaries yeah. and creating um, awareness around how you're showing up and how it's impacting others. Um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting. Well, I do too. And you know, the, the, the bottom line on this that I learned over the years and that I teach, um, is that it's okay to be wherever you are on the chart, above the line, below the line. We're human. Alexander, no can, can you give those those three up and three down? Because I, I think it's really helpful when you know what the plus three is and the minus three. And I think our listeners would just benefit from say, hey, this is what plus three is. This is what minus three is. What plus two, plus one. And I was, I was, I found it really interesting. And it's simple. I think it's just a good takeaway for people. Yeah, sure. Let me pull one up for you. And the way we do this is we actually have clients or teams or whoever's doing it use their own language so careful not to use our language but at a minus three you know words that come up that describe a minus three state of mind might be hopeless depressed resigned despair at a minus two you might have frustrated worried distressed and angry at a minus one you might be tired anxious stressed or sad so that's you can see how you go from very low states of mind to less low then you have a neutral mind. You get to plus one, you're at content, happy, rested, and calm. At a plus two, you might be energized, joyful, and engaged, excited. And then at plus three, it's ecstatic, elated, euphoric, and passionate. So that's how this plays out. And the fact is, we're going to be all of this. I mean, you know, some people go from plus three to minus three in a, in a day, in an hour. You wake up in a plus two state of mind, you open your phone, there's that email with that flag and that name, you're minus two in a second you know? <laughs> and so variability is part of the game fine and we are humans so that is and wherever you are you're going to see the world that way you know if, if, if you're a parent and your kids are there doing something if you're in a minus two state of mind let's say worried or distressed your reaction to them doing that thing is going to be very different than if you're energized and joyful so we have to understand that it's not them they're doing the same thing it's our state of mind, the lens through which we see the world, that probably will inform the actions we're about to take. Wasn't always clear about that. I would just take action. Um, the impact thing is important, though, because let's say I am worried or distressed, and that's just where I'm at. Now, there are plenty of things we can do to shift our state of mind at the moment, but if I can't shift out of it and I'm about to go into a meeting, what do I do? I used to bring my worry and distress and impose it on my team. Like they had to be worried and distressed with me. That was the error. 
the right way to go, I think the leadership way to go is to say, you know what, I walk in, if I can't shift it, and I am, then I own it. I am worried, haven't slept in a couple nights, I'm a little distressed, um, I share it, it's not for you to take, just need some support and some understanding, and here's what I need. That is powerful. I never did that. If I had just done that more often, I think I would have had a different result. How do you help people locate themselves? In this thing? Yeah. Like what, like I really struggle with people that just lack self-awareness and, you know, part of what I, I work with people on is to locate some of their blind spots, but there are people that are, that I've interacted with that just have no, no awareness of like right. locating themselves. Um, so, cause what it sounds like is I need to locate where I'm at. And then I need to be vulnerable enough to share it with the people that I care about or that are important. And then there's probably an element of like, what can I do to shift my mind right. into a different place? So like, I, and so I'm, I'm curious right. about that first piece is like, how do that's I locate? Where, yeah. Mindfulness is probably like a, what do you, yeah. What do you think? So I, I, have, I have an answer to this question. Um, you know, and, and by the way, as you said earlier, it's, the idea is to notice, shift, and share. I, I, I notice my state of mind. I try to shift it. If I do, great. If I can't, then I'm still below the line and I have to engage, then I share it. Okay. Okay, so that's important because a lot of us can shift. Plenty of people know how to shift their state of mind, um, and that works. I think the noticing um, takes practice. So there's a couple things that clients can do. One, they can do a little personal state of mind tracker and at the end of you know each day the meeting by meeting by meeting that day they can write down how they felt what their mood was what their state of mind was what their reactions were so they can start to write down event by event what their various uh states were and they can do that over time and they can see the variability and they can start to put some language to it but some people don't have that awareness. So what I suggest they do if they're interested in this work is to get a couple of feedback partners, maybe someone in their personal life, a couple of people at work, who can, with permission, let them know once in a while how they're coming off, what their mood is or seems to be, what their emotional state is or seems to be, and to um, <clears throat> give them that feedback. And it's oftentimes when we get that feedback and say, really? that we start to realize that in that moment, there is a certain feeling inside of us that feels normal and habitual. But in that moment with that feedback starts to link two things together. And it's different than the feedback I received this morning, which was a different piece of feedback, which had a different feeling. That's a very powerful way to do it. Now a coach can do it, but only once in a while. It's the people in our professional and personal lives who are more there oftentimes who can give it more often. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about my relationship with my wife, who is oh. a godsend and uh, just an amazing human. And she is much more even and I'm much more emotional. And I think a lot of people think the woman tends to be more emotional and the man tends, kind of like what you're talking about with your parents. But I am, I am definitely the more emotional one. And for me, the emotion is anger uh, that really can show up. And I like to get into like the foxhole and let's go, like argue, debate. Like, you know, I, I'm very, 
I think I was small growing up and scrawny and I sort of learned like, I'll go in the foxhole with anybody, anywhere, anytime. <laughs> and uh, I've gotten better at, I don't want to say managing it because I think that's, I had a podcast guest in the past that really challenged me on anger management, but I think I've created more awareness around it. And I think that's like noticing it. And what she's done for me is typically she notices when I get there before I do. And she just gives me space and uh, lets me sort of be in that space and doesn't engage. And I'm not suggesting this is the best. We still got work to do on this, but um, she won't necessarily engage with me until I'm in a different state and then we'll have the conversation um you you mentioned shadows earlier i think there's another shadow as well um Uh so it's not all clean and clear but i I definitely think for me one of the things i've learned is to not necessarily make decisions when i'm in that state of anger whether that's writing an email right away or saying something right away like trying to find more space and she's definitely um rubbed off on me in that in that way whereas in the past i would just react and now I try to create space and then respond um, and, and be more responsive than, than necessarily reactive. So that's how it's showing up for me, but I haven't mastered it by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and well, it's a work in progress for sure. Well, thanks for the honesty and the openness on that. Because, and I think these are life journeys. You know, I used to think, oh, I'm going to be all healed and better one day. I'm going to fix myself (laughs) and no you know some of those early early neural pathways that were built in those early days those deep grooved pathways i've been able to shift some of them create alternative paths extinguish others but there are some deep deep ones and to put it all together right i moved around so much that by the age of 18, 12 moves, I start getting this fundamental assessment, this thought, this worry that I'm going to leave again. They're going to, I'm going to lose them. They're going to leave. They're going to go away. So this became a fundamental worry. They don't like me. You know, I'm, I'm not part of them. Um, and, and so you get, I get this worry. This worry shows up as every time in my work life that somebody doesn't answer an email or I don't, um, land a job or somebody doesn't smile at me, I'm back in that old thought. I drop my state of mind. I get stressed out and I'm like, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And it happened just the other day. And my wife is one of my um, coaches on this. You know, I, something happened. I, there was an email and something occurred. And I was like, oh, I think I missed a little something in my interpretation of an email. It came back as looking at it differently. Whatever it was, I got up and went to the kitchen. I was like, ah, oh, no, damn it. And my wife Janice goes, you know, why the stress? Well, well, she goes, why the stress? And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I think I, I think I may have screwed something up. And, oh, and I go back to, and she goes, and so, what do you do about it? Oh, I go back and clean it up. She goes, yeah, go back and clean it up. Oh, so why add all the drama? Like, why, why do all that stuff? But that's just the habit. It's the habit nature of that. And thank God for her because she, uh, she's, she's so diligent about every time gently saying, hey, and getting me back on track. I want to talk about team coaching and just go over in that direction because it's one of the more interesting parts of your, of your journey. It's all very interesting, but that's the part that <laughs> I think is actually very unique to you. Um, there aren't that many people that I know in the executive world that are really passionate about 
coaching teams. And I think the attraction for me is that coming from sports, you know, I always, when I'd go work with a team, it was trying to find my way and, and make an impact or add value or however you want to think about it with in a, a team setting. And even to this day, I navigate working with an entire team and it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And so when did you first get interested in this idea of team coaching and walk people through what it looks like because it might be yeah. different than what they are assuming so this is great this is the passion of my life it's what i'm very well known for it's what our firm Corentis does um and it's an amazing field of work that's by the way growing very quickly um before i jump into that there's there's another important piece about growing up that's important to stay here because it actually leads to this conversation. During those 12 moves, something else happened to me, which was unfortunate, as I started to get bullied, really bullied. Um, that's an experience that started for me very young and actually lasted all the way till I, I mean, it started around seven or eight and it lasted all the way until I was about 15, 16. And no matter where you went, it was yeah. consistent? It was consistent. Huh. And the, bu- and the bullying was, you know, sometimes severe. Yeah, you know, I can get into it, but getting beat up, getting insulted, getting pushed against the lockers, getting, you know, really the, the endless amount of taunting and name calling. And I think that created a lot of pain, psychic pain that added to the feelings of moving in isolation and loneliness. So all of that creates all of me back then and having to deal that with that at a young age. And I've talked to a lot of people who've been bullied and um, it's, it's an awful thing. Um, I've watched my daughters go through it um, and I've watched a lot of people go through it. Anyways, that lived with me um, up until I was 17, 16, 17. Then it kind of went away because I got older. Then I went to college, University of Michigan and, didn't experience it much there. And then I went out to the work world. And then I got into um, Columbia for my master's in organizational psychology at Teachers College. And I took a course there called um, Group Dynamics. And that was the course that I actually, I think, woke up in. When I was engaged in that work, whether it was the Tavistock training or the T groups or the deep group dynamics work, um, I started to really see myself incapable and unable to be in a group and how much fear had grown in me about being in groups and that I was very much on the outside and I created all this protection around myself to not engage. And it woke me up to this reality that I wasn't the only one. Some people who had been through what I'd been through um, didn't also felt not included, not able to engage, not able to um, integrate or be with others. So that class really impacted me and I wanted to do that work. When I got to, the, to my career in consulting in the early days and I started to do consulting work and I was asked to work with teams, um, I was given three tools, team building. So do ropes courses and cool exercises and metaphors, and that's fun and great. Facilitate, which means drive the team through work, you know, take the pen and teach them to do work and get an output, or consulting, do some assessments and give them some readouts. Okay, 
I was a young consultant. I was doing that. But I was feeling this missing piece, which was what I had experienced back at Columbia, which had gone so far to healing me and to helping me become a part of a group. It wasn't happening in these team meetings. Nobody during the work, during the team meetings, was actually talking about what was happening at that moment in the work, in the team meetings. We were either doing team building offhand, I was driving the meeting, or I was giving some best practices, but nobody was really talking about it in that moment. Does that make sense? Two things. One is, would you, would calling you a bully when you were uh, doing your, your consulting work in your late 20s, would you, would you say that you were a bully with the people that you were around? No. Um, I wasn't a bully. And this is interesting. It's a great, it's a fair question because I think inside fundamentally I was a kind person. I am a kind person. I'm a very uh, caring person. Um, I was raised with good values. I'm a very respectful person. So what was interesting about what I was doing in those days is, as I was giving off those lower states of mind and my stress and my anxiety, I wasn't doing it purposefully. I think there's a part of bullying which is really intentional to hurt the other. I was just letting out who I was and I wanted people to do things and I wanted to mobilize and I wanted to get things done. I didn't know how to do it any other way. I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. I wasn't trying to be mean and I certainly wasn't trying to be insulting. So no, I don't think I was a bully. I might have been experienced as being aggressive and tough, but I don't think that I would have been called a bully. No so one maybe, ever commented. Maybe you would tire people out and burn them out, but it wasn't abusive in the same no. sort of nature that a bully would be abusive physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever you want to call it. No, and then you know my colleagues would give me feedback. Like, hey, you know, the, because I was amicable and because I was a, a good person, also, you know, after a day of work, I'd get feedback like, "Hey, dude, you know." Um, <laughs> you're a little stressed out. Like, you know, you can cool it down a little bit. Like that was, you know, when, when you did that, that was a little uncomfortable for me. Like you challenged me that way. Um, so I would get good feedback and I would take and go, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, Ugh, like sometimes I'd say, you know, it's just the way I am and so on. But sometimes I'd be like, you know, why did I do that? Too intense, too serious. Um, that sort of stuff. Aggressive yeah, too, is the word you're saying. Too intense, too serious, too aggressive, not light. Like we can have some fun too. And I'm feeling a little, you know, I'm feeling a little um, on edge with you. It has to be perfect or you're judging me or all that. So that was more of the feedback than you're a bully. Got it. And then the part that's coming up for me is when you're talking about team coaching yep. and the real life, like we're in the room, let's have a, a conversation about what's going on right now. I think of sports again. So the head coach, the assistant coaches, whether in practice or in the game, they give real-time feedback to their players. Right. Now, this is where it's really interesting for me because when I learned about team coaching from your lens, it's very different than sports coaching in the sense that you're making maybe two or three moves over a two-hour meeting or whatever it is. And when I say moves, like specific intentional questions to – have the team think a little deeper and more intentional about how they're showing up. Right. Whereas a sports coach is 
saying something every single moment. And oftentimes they're not questions, although good sports coaches will ask great questions to their players to help them learn and grow. So it's just interesting the differences oh. and similarities there because in some way you're in the room where it's happening and you're, you're doing it right there just like a, a sports coach. But the difference is that you're A, using questions, I think, typically, and B, less is more there. So walk people through what it looks yeah. like. If we have an hour meeting or a two-hour meeting and you're in the room as the coach, what does that typically look like? That's a great question. Um, first of all, team coaching is one modality. Team facilitation, team training, team building, team consulting are other modalities. We believe all of those modalities fit under an umbrella called team development. And this is something that's being ironed out right now in the field. So in a given engagement with the team, sometimes I'll facilitate, sometimes I'll team build, sometimes I'll train, I'll do all of it. But when I'm in that team coaching modality, the way it looks is the team has contracted with me through a whole series of interviews and assessments to focus on certain elements of their performance or their relationships. They want to focus on, let's say, decision-making, accountability, meeting, mastery, trust, communication. So when I sit in a meeting, in a real meeting, that's when I do team coaching. So it's a real meeting. It's real work. It's the operational review meeting. It's the pipeline meeting. It's the strategic, whatever it is. I'm in a real meeting watching the team do real work. And what I'm doing is I'm watching them do real work on the areas that I've contracted for. So I'm, I'm observing them in the domain of accountability. And so I have a whole series of ideas around accountability, which I can teach them that they know. And I'm starting to pick up data. And I'm watching them do it. So, you know, when people miss their to-dos or their commitments, nobody says anything. I start to notice that they make fuzzy agreements which aren't logged anywhere. They make soft asks. You know, could you maybe perhaps do that and those aren't really clear requests. Start to notice a number of things as they work. And what'll happen is every once in a while I'll say, can I jump in here? And I'll do one of two things. I'll either ask them a question like, you know, in, in the domain of accountability as you're working through this, how do you think you're doing? What are you noticing? And it causes them in the moment to become self-observant, which creates self-awareness, and they can self-regulate. Or I'll give them some data. You know, I've been watching, I've been observing just the past half hour. I've noticed, you know, 10 soft asks, three agreements. I'm not sure where those went. And I'm noticing that on the to-do list, about 50% weren't done. Not sure, you know, what happened there. Neutral data. What do you want to do about that? And what's fascinating about this approach is that because it's real time, real work, because the data is offered neutrally, um, the team deals with it. But it's not a metaphor. It's not a game. It's not an exercise. It's, oh, what are we going to do about it right now? And that engages a type of conversation which creates, again, self-observation, self-awareness, and self-regulation. I love the first part, though, that it's collaboration on what they want and getting really clear on, hey, what do you guys care about? Yes. And they sounds like those are quote unquote soft skills or inner skills that um, they otherwise might not hold each other accountable for compared to the technical or the tactical or whatever you want to call it. What you've sat in on so many meetings. 
what makes an effective meeting? What, like, I think about where we're at right now, where people are having these Zoom calls and these meetings and these meetings and these meetings, and they're from their home. And even right now, as we're recording this, I hear my son outside. And thankfully, my four-year-old son is, 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 is very um, well-behaved. And my daughter hasn't woken up yet. If my daughter wakes up, everybody will probably hear her on, on the podcast. But, uh, but, but I think about where we're at, where people are having these meetings and what might've worked in person is different than what they're doing virtually. And by the way, what they were doing in person might not have been effective either. Like, what do you think people should be taking into consideration when they're, when they're running meetings? Oh, that's a whole topic. Uh, um, there are so many good books and good methods and good ideas on running constructive, effective meetings. Um, where we end up in the conversation is a couple of basic principles. Um, and, and they have to do, it, actually it's, 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 a, it's a broader conversation that ties into the very nature of what a team does and, and what a team is supposed to be doing. So, hmm. Where to start? So first, it's important to understand um, the different types of meetings we can have and the frequency at which we should have them. There are strategic meetings, operational meetings, and tactical meetings. How often do you have those, and what goes on those agendas? You know, sometimes we mix too many topics in one meeting, and we don't differentiate those. So strategic meetings, less often tactical meetings, more often agendas that are clearly aligned with those strategic, operational, and tactical types of work. Having a meeting. Um, you know, the idea that each meeting is actually a composite of topics or work sessions. A meeting has a meeting owner who is accountable for that meeting's success, who engages work session owners to come in and deliver a topic. That's an idea. Um, and that that can be delegated to those people to come in and deliver a topic. In the delivery of a topic or a work session, to be really clear about what we call the OPO, the objective process outcome. So if I get an hour on a meeting, um, what is my OPO? I have six objectives. Am I here to share information? Am I here to ideate? Am I here to solve a problem? Am I here to plan, make a decision, or create a work product? What do I want? What's the outcome I'm looking for in that hour or less? And then what's my process to get there? This OPO idea of thinking through how to spend the hour is where most meetings fail. Once I drop into my hour and I begin my work session in that meeting, then who's going to help me? Who am I delegating timekeeping to, scribing to, facilitation to? And how do I ensure that those people help me get to my outcome based on my process? Now, not all meetings have to do that. That sounds very rigorous. But if more meetings had that, I think we'd be in a much better place. But most meetings aren't run that way. It's a mixture of stuff. People show up unprepared. They don't have an OPO. You sit there and go, what am I doing here for this hour? There's no clear outcome. There's no process. You go through a PowerPoint. And nobody really knows what the intention is. And that's one of the big problems. It's a great place to start to wind down. As, as you think about yourself, you're, you run a business, you're also executing and you're a teacher. Um, you got a lot going on. What do you do to intentionally make sure that you're at your best day to day? Great question. 
So, you know, I think there's what I call the healthy quad. And the healthy quad is exercise, nutrition, nature, and sleep. It begins there. When we did our state of mind research and we interviewed, well, actually we surveyed over 740 leaders globally. This was published in hbr.org. It's interesting to note that most leaders said the same thing, that the fundamentals of exercise, nutrition, nature, or sunlight, and sleep were fundamental. So I really focus on working out, eating well, getting sleep, and spending some time outdoors in nature. That's fundamental, and that's really important. Um, in addition, I think there are some what I call, you know, the, the joy trio, which is connecting with people I love, making sure that I have connection time, um, music, and um, taking some time to engage in some hobbies and leisure. It's not all work all the time. There are things I like to do for myself. So connecting with people, music, and what I call play, having some play time. So those are some of the fundamentals to keep my state of mind high, to keep myself healthy, vital, energetic, and, and on purpose. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, a couple of things that I do is um, I have a um, very strong coherence practice. That's my ongoing practice, which is a breathing practice that I engage in pretty much throughout the day. Um, and that's a fundamental practice that allows me to almost meditate in action. It's a resonant breathing technique. It's a 10 second per breathing cycle technique, five seconds in, five seconds out, which I practice. And as I breathe in and out, I focus on the area around my heart and I breathe in and out metaphorically through my heart. I also drop in feelings of gratitude as I do that breathing. And what that does for me is it brings a sense of coherence to me and keeps me level. That's my go-to practice. Um, and if I do that and add a, a nice, uh, glass of water and I do my breathing, I'm in a pretty good place throughout the day. Which of all of those are you lacking as we are in quarantine? Which one are you, do you feel like less is less full for you right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Exercise, for sure. Sleep, I'm not sleeping as well. Um, those two are, are missing for me right now. Uh, the other one is connecting. Uh, I love being with my family and that's really important. And I'm actually getting all this additional time with my daughters and my wife, but I miss seeing my friends. I miss being with my clients. And so the connecting piece on my joy trio um, is missing for me. So those would be the, uh, the three. Um, I think beyond that, the others are pretty much present. Awesome. And if people want to learn more about what you're up to and, uh, what Corentis is up to, where can they do that? Where can they, they follow all your work? Yeah, um, so for your listeners, I'll give a couple things. They can go to Corentis.com. That's our website. There's a lot there. There's a lot of really good free material. They're free to download. Um, I'd like to give them access actually to a private page uh, as a gift for having listened to, to us talk for the past uh, time. So if they do Corentis.com forward slash and write out heart and results, one word. They're going to get to a private page with a password. The password there is heart and results again, but it's ampersand. It's heart ampersand results. They click on that and then they get to our private page and there's a lot of really good stuff there. Some freebies. Um, feel free to 
take whatever they want. That would be a pleasure. Awesome. And I, I just will give this a plug that if you're an organization and your team needs uh, some coaching, there's no one better that I've met than Alexander. And I know he has a team of people that he's helped train and develop over the years that, you know, I can't vouch for them, but I'm sure if Alexander can vouch for them, that they are fantastic as well. And so um, if you want to learn more about my work, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Levinson, uh, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. My website is is being changed. So I'll just leave that out for now. Um, but Alexander, I want to end this conversation by how we started it by just thanking you. Um, thanks for having the generosity to talk to me when I reached out to you. Thanks for being a part of the Georgetown program and, and teaching me. And then thank you so much for giving us your wisdom and, and also your vulnerability and sharing some subjects that especially, you know, there were moments that were emotional for you today. And, you know, that's part of the human experience. So I appreciate you being willing to share your full self with our audience and uh, looking forward to continuing to dialogue with you to figure out how I can be better at what I do and, uh, and, 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 and stealing some of the knowledge that you're posting on your website as well. I'm looking forward to unpacking that and learning that and integrating that into everything that I'm doing as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. I love uh, who you are. I love your vulnerability. I love your humanity. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I love the flow of it. I love where you went. And I felt, uh, I felt supported by you. So it felt like a safe experience. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Here's what I call the healthy quad. And the healthy quad is exercise, nutrition, nature, and sleep. It begins there. When we did our state of mind research and we interviewed, well, actually we surveyed over 740 leaders globally, This was published in hbr.org. It's interesting to note that most leaders said the same thing, that the fundamentals of exercise, nutrition, nature, or sunlight, and sleep were fundamental. So I really focus on working out, eating well, getting sleep, and spending some time outdoors in nature. That's fundamental, and that's really important.